All of us are on a complicated journey of faith, pursuing truth and deeper knowledge of God. But how do we know we're doing it right? Many of you know that faith is a complicated thing, and it can be a painful and difficult journey, and far too often we are not given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson, and one of my best friends, Marty Frederick, and I have agreed to join each other in creating exactly that kind of space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. We want to look honestly at the issues and questions plaguing the Christian church today and to genuinely seek out what it means to live like Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. We believe that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but perhaps one of its greatest allies. We think that the Christian life is more about asking the right questions than it is about finding the answers. And we believe we are being called to continually ask those questions, renewing our minds and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining us on that journey. Well, welcome to uh, another episode of Rethinking Faith, where hopefully our uh, you can think seriously about your faith, and it matters, and it doesn't suck, and a whole variety of things. <laughs> I almost went back to our, our old tagline there and said, where hopefully theology doesn't suck. So for those of you who are newer to the show, we used to be called Theology Doesn't Suck. Now we're rethinking faith, and I totally screwed up the whole intro, but we're going to keep going because I honestly just don't want to record it. So that's how it's going to go. Um, unfortunately, today, uh, my co-host Marty is not with us. Um, he is out being adventurous, backpacking somewhere in Utah in the cold snow, which is not something that sounds fun to me, but good for Marty. Uh, so that's what's going on with him. But we do have uh, a guest with us today, so you guys don't just have to listen to me ramble into my microphone, uh, because if we're honest, nobody wants that. I don't even want that. Uh, and so with me today is Danielle Schroyer. Danielle, how's it, do- how's it going? Hello, it's going great. How are you? Good. Did I get the uh, all name pronunciation correct? You did. Danielle Schroyer, perfect. A tough one, but you got it. You nailed it. First Sweet. try. Awesome. Good stuff. I've been practicing. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, uh, welcome, Danielle. Thank you for taking time out of your day. I know um, things are kind of crazy right now. Or as we're recording this, we're in the midst of the whole COVID nineteen coronavirus thing going on so there's that there's that (laughs) yeah but um just think so as like a starter thing that we do before we kind of go anywhere there's a really important question we ask all of our guests um (laughs) and it matters a lot and so hopefully it matters to you um but if it doesn't that's fine as well (laughs) and here's that question uh what is your favorite hockey team Oh, well, that's easy. <laughs> the Detroit Red Wings. Oh, nice. Okay. Um, that's because I married a guy from Detroit Fair who enough. is a massive, rabid um, Red Wings fan. And so the first Christmas when I was married into the family, they gave me a pair of Bauer hockey skates. And they were like, welcome. You're from West Texas. You probably don't know what these are, but these are hockey skates. And you need to learn how to skate. And we also are Red Wings fans. And I was like, got it. I got it all. I'm on board. So yeah, we support the Red Wings. It's been rough, 
but sure. I also was there for like the, you know, the three Pete. So that was pretty great. Yeah, that's awesome. That's really cool. I think you're our first Detroit Red Wings fan, which is really oh, cool. Really? Yeah, but Marty, Marty would like that, my co-host. So he's from Chicago, so he likes the Blackhawks, but his oh. wife, um, his wife is a huge Red Wings fan. So, uh, okay, awesome. Yeah, yeah, so there's you that. You guys run all the way. And I'm the only one in my family that doesn't play hockey. Both my kids, ah. um, until really recently, played hockey. They played their whole life growing up, and then my husband still plays for, like, the adult rec league on three different teams. So That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so I'm I... a hockey mom, too, and a <laughs> That's hockey great. wife. That's awesome. I think maybe you're you're our most involved hockey person ever, which is awesome. Yeah. Uh, there you go. Yeah, I'm a huge hockey fan. Always have. Okay, so been. who's your team? I like the Washington Capitals. Nice. Yeah, so I I mean that's where I'm from. So I live in Maryland, uh, in a suburb of DC. So makes sense. Uh, and yeah. I also I started playing hockey uh, this year actually in an adult league <laughs> nice yeah that's what all the fun. fun is yeah and i also have a pair of bauer hockey skates so there you go they're great it's awesome they've, yeah they've served me well for like 20 years now <laughs> that's awesome yeah <laughs> cool all right well so aside from uh being a hockey mom uh mm-hmm. can you just fill us in like tell us a little about yourself like who are you what do you do maybe some of your faith upbringing things like that uh So I grew up in a pretty uh, unique family household. My mom is second generation um, raised here, Lebanese. She was actually the first raised here. Um, My grandparents came over, and they're Druze, which is a very small religious group you've never heard of before. (laughs) Um, And then my mom converted to Christianity in her 20s, and my dad grew up in West Texas with Southern Baptists. So I grew up going to Episcopal school and Baptist church and then had my grandparents who were Druze and it was just all very like, God is all these things, which sure. was kind of awesome actually. Yeah. Um, I strangely found myself going to um, seminary. I never thought I would be a pastor. I thought that was like the last thing on earth I should be. And then funny, God was like, no, I think that's actually exactly what you should go do. So <laughs> I did that. Um, I thought I was going to maybe be a professor or something, but I got my MDiv and I actually, at the very beginning of that, um, got connected to Brian McLaren and to people in the emerging church movement before it was that and was part of that for 20 years. Hmm. And so the church that I pastored was an independent emerging community of faith. Um, and I did that for about eight years and it was amazing and awesome. And we got to just be really creative and try new things and it was very communal based and um, I loved it. Uh, and then I stepped down out of that role to, to speak and write full time. And I wrote a couple extra books. I had written one while I was a pastor and I wrote a couple more. And now I spend my time, um, as a spiritual director. Sweet. So that's my newest thing is last year I've been a, a spiritual director and I love that work as well. So that's really cool. Can you just, so for people who don't know, can you kind of explain like what what is a spiritual director? Yeah, people might not be familiar with that term. Yes, yeah. So it used to be that only if you were like a monk or a nun would you have a spiritual director. Um, So like anybody that's in in the monastic orders would meet monthly with their spiritual director and it would just be a way for them to like stay focused and listen to their souls and talk about their spiritual practices and figure out what's most helpful. Um, the cool thing is in the last like 20 or 30 years, almost anyone, can get, I mean, anyone can get a spiritual director now and it's not even a particular Christian thing anymore. Like most of the people that I talk with are clergy or Christians, but 
I have a couple that are a little bit on the fence, you know, they're like, no, but I do believe in spirituality and I just want spiritual practices for my day. And so people come to see me, um, clergy come to see me for just, you know, sustenance and for, for sort of maintaining their connection to God and to, to cultivate their soul. But other people come if they're in the midst of a transition or if they're deconstructing and reconstructing and are just trying to kind of find some stability in the midst of that. Um, they come when they've got to discern something. Yeah. Lots of different reasons, but it's, um, yeah, it's, it's been really great. It's a fun, um, a fun thing to do because everybody's life is in a different place. And so job is really just to listen for where I think God is at work in people's lives and then to just cultivate and support and encourage them to keep going in that direction. Yeah. That's, that's super cool that I feel like that's such a like a cool and unique opportunity as well, um, because you get to have like all the, the cool things that come with uh, getting to be a pastor. So like I'm, I'm a high school and young adult pastor. Um, and so I, I, that's what I do full time. But you get all like the kind of like spiritual care and direction kind of stuff. I'm super relational. So I love that, um, yeah. you know, and working with students. But then also sometimes your hands can be tied because you're in a church and they say there's certain things you can and can't say. Uh, (laughs) But I feel like as a spiritual director, you might have a little bit more freedom. So that's really cool. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Someone was like, you know, I get the question a lot. Do you miss being a pastor? And it's always like, yes and no, you know, some things I miss and some things I don't miss, you know, but, (laughs) but I often say, um, this is, I think, what I thought I was signing up for when I said I was going to be a pastor. I actually think the whole time I was trying to be a spiritual director maybe and it's funny when I tell people I went to my first spiritual direction like um training and so much of it was what we had done at journey at my the church that I pastored and I was like oh yeah no I get prayer stations like I know like I can do those (laughs) I got a whole file you know and people were trying to learn how to be artistic and it was all about being um, embodied and you know holistic and all this stuff and I was like oh I have been here you know so I kind of think and I joke now in some ways that I think my church was a spiritual direction church you know it was very focused on like soulful conversation letting the spirit guide you know being really multi multi discipline and multiple intelligences and um, so it feels like a really good fit for all those things that I've already sort of learned and practiced so Yeah, yeah that's awesome that's a really cool thing yeah. Sweet. Well, today um, I didn't actually ask uh, you to come and chat with us about spiritual direction, although that would be a super cool thing because uh, <laughs> it's definitely something that piques my interest. Um, but I wanted to talk to you today about uh, this idea of original blessing, which yeah. you, in case you didn't know, you wrote a book about that. Um, <laughs> called, <laughs> it's called Original Blessing, uh, Putting Sin in Its Rightful Place. Uh, and it's a wonderful book. I actually... So I, I got that book. Um, if you, I just, you might think, uh, hopefully you think this story is funny. I purchased this book uh, one day specifically out of rebellion because I was so angry at a friend of mine, a conversation I just had um, specifically around original sin. And I was like so utterly frustrated that I remember it had seen your book on Amazon. I went on and I purchased it out of spite. Like I'm getting this just because I'm angry right now. <laughs> That is so funny. Well, I actually think that's awesome because one of the reasons I wrote it was for people who were like, I just have got to think about another way. Like yeah. I have to figure out if there's another way. So even if you do that out of spite, that's great. That's actually what I wrote it for. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's how, how it started. And then, um, 
I got it and I had it on my shelf for a little bit and then because uh, I always have stacks of books that I'm supposed to be reading because I have a problem where I buy too many books um, and I finally got to it and once I got to it I could not put it down um, I yeah. think I, I read it wow. in like two days I, I, I loved it it was super great uh, super helpful and just um, so much of it, like content wise like I don't know how to say it without saying weird. It like rung true, in, like in your innermost being, kind of. Um, so I, it was super. Yeah, I really enjoyed it, um, and so I'm excited to to be able to chat with you about it today. I think before we can go to the idea of original blessing, um, I thought maybe it would be helpful to start uh, with where my assumption would be a lot of people uh, actually end up starting. I know it's where I was. I uh, told to start, and that's with the idea of what's called original sin. Mm-hmm. And so people, most people probably know what this is, even if they don't know it by that phrase, original sin. So can you just kind of explain to us uh, what what exactly is original sin? Yeah, like if you ask someone on the street, they would probably just say, oh, that's the idea that like humans aren't perfect and that they sin and that, you know, they do wrong things. Um that's, I think, sort of the way that culture approaches original sin is this idea that humans are, are like, you know, have this capacity to be pretty terrible. <laughs> sure. Um, which I maybe wouldn't even disagree with. But technically, actually, what the doctrine of original sin says in every Christian tradition, um, I actually looked up all the statements of faith for every. So regardless of who you are, this belongs to you unless you're Eastern Orthodox. Hmm. Um, and maybe Mennonite, although, yeah, no, it still counts. Um, (laughs) original sin is the declaration that your nature, your very human nature is inclined toward evil. So it's not neutral. It is inclined towards evil. So if if you as a human had two choices before you, original sin says that you will always be inclined towards the evil choice and not the good choice. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and they even say, I mean, some of them say them very strongly, but it's applied to evil continually. So it's not like you grow out of it or you get, you know, spiritually matured past it. It's always with you. And that is the problem of why you can't do the right thing. Sure. And, and I think you, you hinted at this, but it, it, um, is it fair to say that there's like, I guess, varying degrees of this idea? Cause like you, I think you said like a very nice version of original sin, like, oh, people, your nature is evil and you tend, you're going to choose evil where some people would say, Nope, totally depraved. You like, yeah. you are a piece of crap. The yeah. worst of the worst. Like it's not just that you have the capacity to sin. It is that you are sin itself. Is that yes. fair? Some people. Yeah, you can definitely correct. Like the most benevolent way you can say it is if you're faced with two choices, you will always, gear towards the evil one first. That's mm-hmm. the nicest way you can say it. But you can for <laughs> sure. sure go on steroids and say, you are a total piece of crap. Yeah. Nothing, nothing inherently good lies within you. You do hold the image of God, but you don't ever live into it in this kind of way that's part of your, your human nature is deeply flawed. Mm. It's the reason Jesus had to die. Yeah. You can't ever fix it. It can go really dark. Um, yeah. So, And some some of the doctrinal statements are just really deeply depressing the way that they put it, you know, inclined to evil continually is a pretty sad thing to say about humans, but you just (laughs) get way worse, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Man. Yeah. It's super interesting. Um, 
that that's i mean that's definitely i was probably brought up somewhere in between those those two like the benevolent form versus like the you are just awful form um and then later in life i actually saw more and more of the you're awful you're awful you're awful um and that just never quite sat right with me um but i think this idea of of original sin isn't necessarily uh people tend to think that this is just always what the church has taught always since forever this is the norm if you go against it you're wrong uh but i don't think that's true when did this when did this develop yeah so that's the other really interesting thing is the minute you start sort of poking holes at that and saying, okay, when did this start? You realize that the early church didn't hold this view. It was floating around, like people had views of sin that were, had not been nailed down yet. Um, But the concept of like, for example, Calvinist total depravity didn't Mm -hmm. come along until Calvin, which was in the Reformation. That was a lot longer down the line, right? Um, So for the first 400 years, there was really no central doctrine of sin, and certainly not a doctrine of original sin. And it wasn't really until um, St. Augustine that there was even this concept. And he's also the one that kind of created this concept of like individual sin being the main thing, which has just been just horrible. You know, we could spend a whole hour talking about how that has also ruined capitalism in a lot of important ways. And like, community like we can look at coronavirus and say if we had figured out that this was like there's a connection that happens like we get it that if we don't get it we still have to stay in our houses because an elderly person can get it you know Mm -hmm. like it has Mm -hmm. affected us on so many levels of not understanding systemic racism and systemic injustices because we've way too far listened to what Augustine said about it being individualized so our Mm -hmm. concept of individual sin wasn't even that prevalent until that, but then he also made it um, about original sin. So individual and original sin kind of came together at the same time. And then you can kind of see that the Western church took the side of Augustine, basically, Mm -hmm. and decided that that was the way to go. And so they kind of, through the years, have doubled down on it until we got to, even past what I think John Calvin meant, you know, he certainly wrote some rough things in the Institutes, but his followers have taken it kind of to places I don't even think Calvin would want. <laughs> yeah, especially with like the hyper-Calvinist movement. Yes, yeah. you know, because he did have a little more balance. I mean, I can't believe I'm even remotely trying to defend John Calvin, but he did have more balance in his his whole theological project than sure. his followers I think oftentimes so. do today. I agree. And so that's, a comp- that's complicated. Um, but the Eastern Church has never joined. So Mm -hmm. the Eastern Orthodox version or branch of the Christian church has never had a doctrine of original sin. Judaism hasn't, Islam hasn't, Buddhism doesn't, Hinduism doesn't. Like all the other world religions have a concept of the inherent goodness of humanity and the acknowledgement that you have this choice about whether you live into that goodness or not. Mm-hmm. So it's funny that like all the world religions agree on that, and Western Christians are the only ones that have gone off on <laughs> right. rabbit trail. So yeah, it's, it's weird because we're we've been told that like we're the this is like the most obvious version of the world that we should see the world through, and it's like actually, if you look across time and space and all religions, we are way on the outskirts. Yeah. That is super interesting. And it, man, I mean, this is going to get a sidetrack, but it, it almost makes me think too, like what is so psychologically appealing about this idea? You know, like, I don't know that that's a whole nother thing. 
Um, <laughs> but uh, but I, I think that's important because it is psychologically appealing to be like, it's not my fault. Like, right, that's true. I'm just born this way. Yeah. I'm just, I can't, I can't do better. Like, I'm sinful and I can't do better. It's right. really very convenient <laughs> to yeah. say that Jesus fixed it all and I don't have to. Sure, yeah, that it's, I mean, it can be like that, uh, I know, <laughs> I always think this is funny, but when you're dealing with like little, little kids, you know, like three, four, five years old, um, often you'll be like, you know, oh, why did you do that? Oh, the devil made me do it. <laughs> right, right. It's like kind of like that. very convenient. Yes, you can make it outside of yourself and it's not about you really digging in and doing the work to try to be a decent person, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, so yeah. that's totally part of it, I think. I think, too, also, there might be some kind of like, it almost seems like the more pious thing to do would be like, oh, I'm so bad, but thank, you know, God is so good kind of thing. Like, I'm not trying to make fun of the, you know, the idea, but that it seems like that factors in as well. Yeah, it is. It's rough because you can make it be a very self-righteous thing. And that's yes. so dangerous. You know, it's, it's really dangerous when like bad theology can become self-righteous because yeah. <laughs> then you stay in it, you know, right. That's what makes you stay. And then it's bad for everybody. Yeah, so. straight up, man. So we kind of already uh, talked about, I was going to ask you, like, what does original say, sin say about us? And we kind of already talked about that, I mean, unless you had anything to add. But if not, um, I kind of wanted to see what does original sin tell us about God? Which I think yeah. is an interesting question. So I think the most disturbing thing it says about God is that we have the capacity to change our na- the nature that God gave us. Mm, <laughs> interesting. In Genesis 1 and 2, God didn't, it doesn't say anywhere that we were given a sin nature. Like, mm-hmm. you, y'all can proof text that till the cows come home. It does not say that we have a sin nature. There's lots <laughs> of stuff about sin, but the fact that we are inclined to evil continually is not anywhere present in Scripture. Um, so where did we get the idea or the audacity to say that we can take what God created and called very good— and and um, that we were created in the image of God and think that we have the capacity to change that and make mm-hmm. it something different. Like to give our sin, even if we're, if we're talking about Genesis 3, to give whatever happened in the garden that much credence that it could undo God's good creation puts so much sovereignty on our part. This is what, you know, the argument is when I'm talking to a hyper-Calvinist. I'm like, you care so much about God's sovereignty but you're the one taking God's sovereignty away because God didn't say, I'm changing your nature because of all of this. And you're saying that you have the power through this one sin to change what God has chosen to do. Mm, interesting. So for me, I think original blessing is this um, declaration that God is sovereign over creation even after we sin. You know, it's, yeah. God gets to decide and say, no, I'm still going to love you and I'm still going to think that you are good and that's my prerogative. It's really not your decision. What, how I, how I look upon you, you know? Sure. Yeah. That's really great. Sweet. Okay. So then why, and I mean, you've hint, you've, you've touched on this already too. Um, but just to kind of wrap it up, cause then I want to kind of do the same thing define original blessing and then kind of carry out some, uh, repercussions, if you will, about original blessing. But what, like, what was it, if you can remember, what was it that made you start thinking differently about original sin? Like, did you have a point where your original sin was kind of what what you knew and then you kind of like broke from that? Like, why was it problematic? What kind of caused that for you? Yeah, 
you know, I always say that as a little girl, I just, I remember hearing the story of Eve taking the apple and it was just told as this terrible thing. But then when I actually read my Bible, it was like, she wanted to be more like God. And so she, and I asked in Sunday school class, like, isn't that what we're supposed to do? Aren't we supposed to try to be more like God? I don't understand why she did the wrong thing. And I mean, it was for sure not the acceptable thing to ask that <laughs> at the Sunday school. Um, but I, I mean, I do think that I've always had a question about this and it hasn't, it hasn't made sense. And I think in seminary, when I was learning about, um, forms of atonement and theologies of atonement, it really got dicey because I thought, you know, if I don't figure this out, this is probably, this is probably bad. You know, I need to either stay in this, this ministry thing and know what I think about that or get out if I don't think that that's true. Cause I couldn't figure out how to talk about what God, what Jesus did and what God did with Jesus on the cross in a way that made sense. And it was because mm-hmm. of original sin. And so once I started kind of working with that, that shifted a little bit. And then really the last thing was being a pastor and seeing people who grew up maybe more fundamental. I didn't grow up fundamentalist um, or even really evangelical either, but hearing people who had, you know, differing experiences of that, some good and some bad, a lot of them came with this, this real baggage about their humanity. And for me as a pastor, I was like, look, if you can't get past this, this is a real barrier for you growing in Christ. I mean, this is really just about discipleship at the end of the day. Like you cannot stay in a shame spiral if you want to be of good use in the kingdom of God, you know? Mm -hmm. So it just became deeply practical in those um, years of ministry that this was such a problem and that it, it kept showing up everywhere. You know, it didn't matter where we went in the real, in spiritual life, original sin would sort of rear its ugly head and create these barriers and these roadblocks and these problems. And um, I just felt so convinced and convicted that this was just the wrong way to do it. So mm. we had to always talk about, different ways of seeing it yeah that's really helpful I think because I I was trying to you know answer that question myself um earlier when I was you know kind of putting the some of the questions together for this interview and for me uh oddly enough I think it goes back to when I first started reading N.T. Wright um N.T. Wright is my favorite theologian um I don't know if you can see but here is him this oh yeah he's got here (laughs) he has a whole shelf on my bookshelf um but the first book I read by him was Surprised by Hope. I was about to say, did you start with Surprised by Hope? That'll I did. do it. I did. Yeah. And he doesn't use that language. Like he doesn't talk about original sin versus original blessing, but he talks about what it means to be created in the image of God. And then he talks about partnering with God and, you know, the imagery of kind of like being a mirror, reflecting God's character creation, and then reflecting creation's praises back to God and how sin dehumanizes us. And once he went, those things started to click and so much more, so many more things started to make sense. Um, and so for me, that's kind of where it started, even though he didn't use that language. Yeah. Um, I think for me, that's where, yeah, that's, that's kind of where it started to happen. So I guess uh, the next thing to do so we can move on is start talking about original blessing. Um, and then again, I want to kind of go through some ideas you brought forth in your book, but uh, original blessing is something that definitely a lot of people probably aren't familiar with that phrase at least. Um, so what, what is exactly, what exactly is original blessing? 
Yeah, well, that phrase was coined by Matthew Fox, who's a Catholic um, priest and theologian. Hmm. And um, he wrote a book by that name in the 80s. Um, and the, the concept has been around for forever, but I loved so much his phrase. And if people know what that is, it's kind of the, the parlance of the day. And so I felt like um, kind of leaning into that and, and like hitching to that instead of trying to create another another label for it. Sure. Um, the way that I define original blessing in my book, because Matthew Fox's book is like 400 pages of dense. <laughs> so like if you're a theologian, knock yourself out. It's great. Um, it's definitely not for your average, you know, layperson is not going to pick it up and, and bust through the 400 pages of, of Matthew Fox's brilliance. Although, you know, it's lovely. Um, so I tried to figure out ways to, to communicate it in a way that was a little more accessible. So my mm -hmm. definition is, um, you're in a relationship with God and God started it and God is sticking with it. Mm. And, um, if you look through all of all the stories in scripture, you know, I think that's kind of one of the basic meathead, you know, Hey, I really want you to know this. Like <laughs> right. you humans just keep forgetting this one basic thing. And I just really, if you'd get this through your thick skulls, it would just be so much better for you. You know, sure. that one thing that God wants to know is like, I am here. I am with you. I'm not leaving. Yeah. You do terrible things. You know, you make horrible choices and I'm still going to just be present to you and wait for something better to come. You know what I mean? And I will mm -hmm. help you with that. And the spirit will interact with you to bring that to bear. And eventually I'll probably have to take the whole thing over and finish it out for you. But you are supposed to be in this with me and I'm not going anywhere. Mm -hmm. And so original blessing is just, um, this statement of relationship with God, because before we can get to the part where we figure out what we're doing with our choices, we have to acknowledge and understand. And I think rest in this real, real, real beautiful um, sense of fidelity that God has towards us. Mm -hmm. So the reason why I love that phrase, original blessing, is because we are blessed with this relationship with God that doesn't end. Yeah. Yeah, and so, I, I mean, you mentioned it's kind of been around forever, so I guess that answers the question. I was going to ask kind of when did this develop, but this has kind of yeah. been around for a while. Yeah, it's been around for a while, and you can you know you can read um, early church fathers who talk about about it not using original blessing language, but they talk about you know the steadfastness of God and the fidelity mm -hmm. of God, and Eastern Orthodox theologians um, talk about it in really beautiful ways um, that sound a little bit different from my book, but the core and the heart is there. And then, like I said, I mean, you could travel across all religions, and you know. Um, basic human goodness is <laughs> is just part and parcel of everything. I just learned. I wish I can remember the the word um, in Hinduism, but there's a word that means like this sense of of, of faithfulness to the good, mm. and it's the it's kind of the goal of human life is to like live to the faithfulness of the good that's already within you. Yeah. And I thought, well, that just sounds so deeply Christian, you know? <laughs> sure. Like, that's not, like I think it's great, and I'm not going to try to adopt it from the Hindus, but I thought there's just so much interconnection between the way that I think God has revealed God's self um, across the board. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think, too, if you wanted to be really snarky, you could be like, oh, well, it starts with Genesis 1. <laughs> it, it also starts with Genesis yeah, 1. Yeah, because I know um, uh, there's a pastor – uh, that I really like, a, a guy, you might have heard of him, named Bruxy Cavey. Um, he's written a few books. He's the pastor of a church in Canada called The Meeting House. 
Uh, but he talks about, he doesn't, again, he doesn't use the language of original blessing, but he talks about this idea that like when we jump, like with original sin, we act as if the Bible starts with Genesis three instead of Genesis one, which is something that you pointed out. Um, but he was the first person I heard say that. And then I heard Richard Rohr talk about, um, like if you start with a problem, then you're just going to build more problems. <laughs> He's yes. like, why do we always have to start with a fly in the ointment is kind of uh, the way he throws it out there, which I think yeah. is interesting. Um, well, and then you make you make God an object because God yeah. becomes your solution. And, you know, not that God doesn't solve things for us, but to see God in that sort of um, practical way, you know, like utilitarian, we see Jesus as this utilitarian fix to the problem that we have. Mm-hmm. It really just... Um, cheapens the whole the whole relationship and so that becomes really problematic too yeah absolutely so what in comparison then to original sin what does original blessing uh have to say about us as humans yeah so we don't have a sin nature we have a human nature and that means that at any given moment we can choose a whole lot of things that have either components of good or evil in them or a mix you know Mm -hmm. and there's nothing so easy as to sit down and say i'm going to choose the good you know it's not like in the cartoons where you've got the angel on one side (laughs) and the devil wouldn't that be great that would be super helpful (laughs) it would be so much nicer to make those kinds of decisions but we live in a super complicated world where even our best decision may have a, a kickback that we didn't intend that maybe doesn't turn out as good as we wanted it to or whatever. And so um, the the issue isn't like that we're inclined to evil continually. The issue is that we're humans in a complex world who are just trying to make the best decision we can given where we are, where the world is, and what's being asked of us in that moment, you know? Um, and so our goal is really to, to make the choices that help us live into our best selves. And we try to make choices from our soul, I would say, as a spiritual mm-hmm. director. Like the choices that come from your soul will be the right choices mm-hmm. um, because they'll take you to the place that God's trying to lead you, the Spirit is trying to guide you. Um, and so our, our intention is really to just say, okay, so if I stay close to God and sort of seek that discernment, that's how I should make my choices, sure. you know? And we also need to acknowledge that we have this capacity for evil that's very real and we can't not take it seriously. But we also need to acknowledge that that's just part of who we are. We also have this capacity to make the world a really beautiful place and to be deeply present to people. And we have the capacity to stay in our houses for two weeks and (laughs) just out of love and care for people that could get sick. You know, we do have this capacity to care for each other and we can choose to cultivate that too. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, I think one thing that I like about that so much, too, is it it almost uh, like breeds or or forces this sense of uh, humility, because then once you start to understand this idea of we have the capacity for both tremendous good, but also for tremendous evil, uh, then it makes it much harder for you to draw the line of us versus them, where it's not so much like we're oh we're the good guys. And they're the bad guys. It's more like, well, maybe that line, instead of between us and them, maybe it goes, you know, down you. Instead, you know, it splits you, mm-hmm. good and evil kind of thing. So I think it breeds humility. I think it helps with humility a lot. Um, yeah. And also adds a, a helpful sense of responsibility as well. Like, hey, we can actually, we have the ability to do some pretty cool stuff. And we yeah. also have the ability to suck. 
<laughs> right. So, <laughs> and we're responsible for both of the times. It's the right. times when we do both of those things. You know? Right. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And also, this is. I guess this might be another rabbit trail, but it also seems to make sense of, uh, at least my experience in the world, is that there are people who are Christians that do very good and beautiful things, um, but there are also people who are not Christian uh, who do very good and beautiful things. Um, yeah. And vice versa. There's Christians who do really crappy things, and there's people who aren't who do really crappy things. So it seems just to make sense that, like, from just an experience perspective, people in general have the ability to do both. Yeah. Um, and I know some, you know, theologians will try to, you know, make different buckets of grace and say, oh, you know, common grace, whatever. But I think this understanding just makes so much more sense of reality and what we see in humans. And so I love that language of our human nature uh, that you kind of, uh, you know, you use throughout the book. So, yeah, well, and even in one person, you know, I mean, unfortunately, we've had to, to face the fact that there are Christians who do a lot of good things who also did some harmful things. You Absolutely. Know? And how do we hold that person as that as a complete thing and say, well, we can acknowledge the good things this person does, but we also have to hold this person accountable. Yeah the terrible things they've done, you know, because in one person, you can have both of those going at the same time, because that's how complex we are. Absolutely. And so we have to hold accountability for that. We have to, you know, bring that to justice or whatever. But um, yeah, it's just, I think it has so much more room for the way that, like you said, the way that we actually experience people and experience reality, like, you know, and also it, it helps us understand, I think, too, that change is not immediate, you know? Mm, okay. Like if you're trying to be, let's say you're trying to be an anti-racist, sure. like I try to do that and I know that I'm not all the way there and I never will be because I still exhibit and experience the world as a white person. Sure. So like I know that there were times 10 years ago where I said things that I would never say now. But at the moment, like that was the best I could do. And mm -hmm. so we have to get be gracious about like, well, that's the best I could do at that time. I had not yet read these books and had these conversations and whatever. But like we also have this understanding that you can always grow in capacity to do a better version of what you used to do in a smaller mm -hmm. way. Yeah. And so it's also, I mean, I think this is what discipleship is like. You know, if we look at the Sermon on the Mount, you're not going to wake up tomorrow and just be able to do that. You have to do that right. incrementally. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's a mountain that we're always trying to climb. And there will be times when we go backward, we get lost, we whatever. But we keep climbing up the mountain and saying, how can we be peacemakers? What does it mean to be meek? You know, mm -hmm. all of these values that are so big to live into, we can only do that incrementally over time. And I think it really allows for us to have the understanding that that's how it is you know? yeah absolutely that's man that's so helpful too it's like i mean it's, when you were talking about um it's seeing it in just one you know individual person because i think so many people get jaded today um because we've seen somebody you know that maybe we've put on a pedestal even inadvertently and they've really helped us or they've helped us grow in our faith or helped us through a hurtful time but then they do something and you feel like you just have to block them out completely um, yeah. which we have to kind of work through that. But then also, too, I think of, um, I mean, you talk about the, the racism thing, and I think a, a, a helpful real-life uh, image or example to show that idea is, like, I think of um, my grandmother-in-law, if my wife's grandmother. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sweetest lady ever, loves everybody, by no means is a racist, but you'll talk to her, she'll be like, oh, Josh, How's that brown fellow that you hang out with? How's he doing? Right. right? Or 
um, to talk about my, you know, one of my best friends, Alex, who's from El Salvador, and then uh, one of my other best friends, uh, Brandon, he's uh, Korean, and she'll ask me, how's that Oriental boy that you hang out with? Right. And so it's like, it's just, I don't know. So I've thought of those things, um, but as you can see, I trace rabbits too much, so get us back. Um, no, no, but it's, <laughs> I think it's helpful because we have to hold space for people to be like, I always talk about it how, like, there are some things that we're further along in and there are some things that we're always still working on. And sure, so sure. we think that we're supposed to be, it's like we don't understand even though we've spent 12 years in school or longer, you know, that, like, you can get an A in math and still be failing English. You know sure. what I mean? Yeah. Like, you're not going to get all A's on everything in your whole life. And so I think, it, it, like you said, it, I brought that up because of this concept of humility that I think mm -hmm. is so important that comes along with original blessing. Like, you could be an A plus preacher, yeah. But maybe you have an F in like gender relations. Sure. Do you know? <laughs> yeah. And so, like, ooh, these are these have to. You have to find integrity, and it's important in spiritual life to like bring all those things together and keep moving them all along. But you're not going to get it all at the same time. Sure. That just isn't how humans work. You know. Yeah. That's really helpful, and I think that's helpful too for. Um people so i'm a person who's i'm extremely hard on myself and so that idea i think is helpful for people who also are very hard on themselves um because you can see that it's all kind of like a process um, yeah and kind of have some grace there uh for ourselves especially because god is the one who gives us that grace in the first place yes so. like god is not shocked that we're failing a couple right. things <laughs> and doing awesome on some other things like god is like i know you and every other human alive you know yeah absolutely <laughs> that's awesome sweet so so then i guess comparatively to the idea of original sin what what does original blessing tell us about god um you know faithfulness and fidelity are at the yeah. core of god's character that's that's the most important thing. And I think when we get that, that's when we start to feel a sense of trust Okay. Um, in a way that I think original sin robs from us and doesn't allow us to have and creates this real ceiling on our relationship with God. Mm -hmm. Because unless we can trust that God loves us just as much when we mess up as when we're doing great, you know, mm -hmm. until we really internalize that understanding I don't know if we get it, you know, and I'm not sure if we ever get it. I'm not sure I'll ever <laughs> understand how God can love certain people that I absolutely don't, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, my favorite theologian is Jürgen Moltmann and he, nice. love he's Moltmann. yeah, me too. He, um, he had this great quote about somebody asking him about hell one time and he was like, well, I mean, if I were in charge, like I wouldn't be a universalist. I myself am not a universalist because there's plenty of people I don't want to see yeah. again. <laughs> <laughs> sure. And he says, but God may be, you know, like mm -hmm. I can't tell you that God might not be one who says love conquers all, right? So I think that's kind of the way I feel about love too. Like there are some people that I just am not going to be able to love in this, in this you know, earthly existence. I can't do it. God can though, and I think God uh -huh. does. And Absolutely. so when we understand that God has this capacity that we don't, again, it reminds us that we are to, to humble ourselves and realize that, that they are recipients of God's goodness and grace as much as we are. And yeah. that's hard. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's so good. I mean, as soon as you say like, oh, thinking about people that, <laughs> you know, are hard to love, 
I know five, six people come to mind for me, and I'm sure for our listeners as well, they can at least come up with one person that fits that category. But it's such a helpful reminder too, like, wow, look how how much bigger God truly is than we are in the sense of, uh, you know, where it talks about like um, uh, scripture, that is where scripture talks about, you know, it rains on both, you know, the good and the bad, you know, the sun shines on on both. Yep, absolutely. Sweet. So I guess uh, one thing that you pointed out is that somebody, um, I guess you were talking to someone and they said, okay, so I I get it. Original blessing is kind of like a glass is half full instead of the glass is half empty. And you kind of give this answer is like, well, yes and no. And I love right. that. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, it was my friend Carter. I had this like conversation group at um, my house when I was trying to sort of brainstorm the book. And um, he said that. And I said, well, actually, Carter, like what I re- I'll take it if you go from being a pessimistic glass is half empty person at the end of the book you become a glasses half full person. Like I'm not greedy. I'll take that as a win. You know? <laughs> sure. But really my goal and intention is that you realize that your relationship with, with God is not, is not, um, in the glass. It is the glass that God holds whatever is inside. So mm. whether what's inside is a really tumultuous questioning, doubting relationship, God is that glass that holds steady whether it's crystal clear and you just feel deeply connected to God every second of the day today, the glass is the same. You know, mm-hmm. God holds us regardless of what storms or stillness is inside of that glass. Yeah. And um, that enveloping love is the stability of the whole universe. Like, I think that's what not only holds us together, but holds like everything together. If sure. I can just be cosmic about it. <laughs> I think the atoms and the trees and the air and everything is held together by that sense of enveloping love of the creator, you know? Uh-huh. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that reminds me of, of, you know, just some of the words of Paul, like, in in him we live and move and have our being. And um, I know this can get people in, in trouble, but I I think I'd probably identify as, like, a Christian panentheist to some extent, that God is the universe plus something else. Um, and so yeah. that all just makes a, a whole bunch of sense to me. And listeners, sorry for dropping um, some <laughs> phrases like that. If you don't know what it is, go right now. Stop what you're doing. Go find the UF Permission podcast with Dan Koch. He has a whole episode on uh, Christian panentheism. It's super solid. Um, just go check it out and then come back. <laughs> nice. Yes. Yes. Yeah, okay. God is in all things. Absolutely. God created all things and left God's imprint on all things and so there's no place that we can go where the presence of god has not been made yeah. and sustained yeah and in him all things hold together i yeah those are some of the most comforting passages for me personally in in scripture yeah me too <laughs> and so uh there were also two like two other really helpful metaphors that you used um and you kind of like brought them uh, throughout the book as well and and the first one is you talk about um, there these two boxes. One is sin, yeah. and one is death. And depending on how you view these two boxes, kind of sets up your understanding of original sin or original blessing. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, um, I, I'm glad you find that helpful. I I was trying to figure out like how do you summarize two thousand years of Christian history <laughs> in a metaphor? I don't know if this was a swing and a miss or if it's helpful, but take what you need from it. Um, So when the Eastern Church and the Western Church split, they basically split over 
prioritizing sin and death. You could say it in one way. Yeah. Um, so if you put sin in one box and, and death in another box, you either see that sin is the big box and death is a result of sin, so you put death inside the sin box, or you see that death is the big box and sin fits into the bigger death box. So the Eastern Church has always said, no, death is the big, like the worst of the two. Yeah. And sin is just a result, is just one more way that you see death happening all around you. Mm-hmm. And so um, that's what they've hold, held on to, and they say that's why Easter's a big deal. <laughs> and uh, they see Christmas as a smaller holiday and Easter as the big holiday, and they do a 12-hour service. It's overnight, you know, they quote the whole, uh, the whole story of Scripture from beginning to end, because that is the declaration that God has um, redeemed us from death. Yeah. The Western church decided that sin was the bigger box and that death was a result of sin. And so that's when they prioritized original sin. That's when baptism came about um, saving you from sin so that you don't die in your sin, um, which changed the rite of baptism from what it had been understood as before. Um, They made all of what happened on the cross with Jesus to be about sin and not about conquering death as much as conquering of sin. Like it all just started to get unraveled when sin was seen as the bigger bad. Yeah. And so um, the way that you prioritize those things is really important because if you see sin as the biggest thing, it's, well, first of all, that seems ridiculous, right? Like <laughs> death is the bigger, I just, it's so funny to me that I've had conversations with people where they're still arguing that sin is the bigger box. And I'm like, death though? Like, right. isn't death the big, like you sin and you're still walking around and can do something <laughs> right. about it. Like death is the bigger box. And yeah, so, it's pretty anyway, bad. It's, one yeah. you don't die, the other one you die. Which <laughs> Right. Like, one is final and the other one is still in process, right? Yeah. Like, um, so anyway, if that's helpful, that's one way of seeing how if you keep your focus on original blessing, then really the whole goal is about you seeking life. And so, like you said, sin is dehumanizing because it takes us away from the life that we can live in Christ now. And why would we want to take that away from ourselves? Like we do, we sometimes willingly choose these things that bring death into our lives. Um, but it's because of the death aspect of it that makes it sinful for us. It's not that it's like the quote wrong choice. What makes it wrong is that it brings death. Yeah. Right. Yeah, absolutely. That, and that's so helpful too. And that, I mean, that way of thinking again, I'm going to go back to right. That's, that's when that started making sense to me is reading NT Wright. And the way I try to explain this to my students is I, I play heavily on the, the metaphor of a mirror um, and how, you know, again, we reflect the character of God to creation and then reflect creation's praises back to God. Um, but what sin does is sin distorts our mirror. Like sin puts cracks in our mirror and smudges and it makes it like look like one of those mirrors. If you've ever gone to see like, you know, um, some kind of concert at like a small bar venue where like the mirror is just disgusting and you're like, why do they even have this in here? <laughs> it's not right. helpful. So. Right. But that's not who the mirror is or what the mirror is designed to be. And so sin ruins our mirror, ruins, dehumanizes us, takes away what it means to be truly human. And then God is trying to save us from that, which results in death. 
Yeah. And so, like, I always tell my students that God kind of like, you know, he repairs, he repairs our mirror and, and fills in the cracks and polishes us off with a bit of Windex. Um, and I think that's such a helpful way. I know it sounds silly, but that's been a very helpful no, way for me to think about it. Yeah, it totally is because um, it's so random, but I, I'm actually reading this um, Enneagram book uh, oh, cool. about, the, about the holy ideas. And I was just reading a chapter where he talked about evil as a distortion. Mm, interesting. And I was like, that's actually a really helpful way of putting it. Because like you said, like what the mirror is trying to say is real is actually a distortion of what is really what is really should be reflected. Like right. the real thing is not being reflected in that mirror because of all the smudging and because of the smoke and because of the whatever is going on that right. bar, right? Like <laughs> it's it's warped and it's not the mirror is saying that reality is different than it is. It's distorting reality. Yeah. And so original blessing is the reality. Right. And um when we see ourselves through these other lenses that distort us or we see ourselves through our through the choices of evil that we make or we make the choices that distort the reality within us that is good. Those all of those things just cloud that image of God that we have within us. And so I yeah, I think that's a really helpful way of looking at it. Yeah, and then it just all starts to make sense, right? That like God created things that were very good and then it all got jacked up because now it's not behaving the way that it should. Like the the whole idea of Jesus like coming to give us eternal life and we can enter into the kingdom here and now, that doesn't make any sense if you only think about sin as like, oh, I did some naughty things and now God is pissed off at me. So right. Jesus has to die. None of that makes sense unless you understand like you were created to be something it's different, an image yeah. bearer to reflect and part, you know, God's character and partner with God. Sin jacked that up. Let me save you from that so you can live into that. And none of that makes sense. The gospel doesn't make sense in my mind. Nothing makes sense until you get that start right. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. 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 Because if you, and if you think about the life metaphor in the terms of like how we actually understand life really does work on planet Earth, yeah. <laughs> it's because of connection, you know, right. like, right. Tree, my bro, my um, son is reading The Hidden Life of Trees right now, and he's he comes in and he's like, did you know that when giraffes come and start eating the leaves on this tree at the top level, like the tree will start telling the trees three down, like, hey, start putting out this bitterness thing so that your leaves don't taste good, so that the giraffe doesn't eat too many of our leaves. Like, <laughs> because you don't want the giraffe to like gorge himself and then the trees don't have leaves. So like they have all these, there's all these amazingly intricate ways that, um, I know this sounds like a rabbit trail, but no, that, um, that like the ecological infrastructure that God has created has set up to create a sense of like balance and wholeness. Like the giraffe can only eat this many leaves, you know, yeah. and the oxygen and, and carbon dioxide should be at this level. And like, part of our understanding of sin has to be well when we when we break that sense of harmony it's sinful because it cuts off the life that was supposed to be thriving in that environment right yeah. and on a human level it's like when we say something awful to somebody that like tears them down in a way that hurts them you know and it cuts off the life that they're available to heal here that day because they're mm-hmm. so hurt they can't hear something good anymore they're just thinking about the awful thing you said so it makes so much more sense to think about sin as cutting off life or imposing death yeah. in places where life should be flourishing and flowing. You know, yeah. this idea of Christ coming to give us abundant life um, 
if we treat people well and if we if we do this right, we have what we need, the earth works okay. You know what I mean? Like literally the whole system is designed for us to stay healthily connected to each other. And it's only when we start messing that up that things start to get messed up, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like the system is designed to work. We're the ones that aren't like working in accordance with the system. You know right. what I mean? Right. Absolutely. And that's so yeah. good. It's so helpful. Yeah. And the one more thing, like one more metaphor that, that you um, talked about throughout the book as well that was really helpful was this idea of like a golden thread. Um, yeah. And the story that I remember that really helped like solidify that in my mind for me was you talk about um, it was when one of your, your children was, uh, were younger, um, and you would have to like go away and, or travel or something like that. And you would tell them that there was like, oh no, there's like this thread that, that keeps us connected. So even when I'm away, we're still connected. Yeah. Um, and then you take that and use that to talk about our relationship with God. Can you yeah. talk? Yeah. Can you just go on a li- about that for a little bit? Yeah. It's funny. Cause I thought like that was a really unique thing. And then I've talked to so many other parents that are like, oh yeah, no, I did that too. So it's funny. It's like, <laughs> Somehow we yeah. all have this innate, and I've actually seen a book about it, like this thread that um, this mom is talking about to her to her child in this book, you know? So it's funny to me that that clearly has to be something that's like God has revealed to us universally because it keeps yeah. coming up in all these different people, right? Um, but yes, I gave my son this little red thread and explained to him that from his heart to my heart, this thread is like, you know, it's unbroken. It will never break. And so he kept this little red thread underneath his pillow when I would go travel to speak or something. And then he would know that like, even though I was far away, I would be close to him. Um, but I also love fairy tales. And so George MacDonald, um, tells a story of the princess and the goblin and um, it's a long fairy tale, kind of longer, but the point is that the, the girl in the story finds that she has a grandmother in the attic, and the grandmother shows her this golden thread. And when, her, when the castle is overrun by goblins and she's, like, you know, under attack, it's the golden thread that actually gets her back to safety. Mm. And so um, the idea is that, that original blessing for us is this golden thread that is always connecting us to God, and it mm. is it's unbreakable. It's impenetrable. It cannot be cut. Um, and as long as we hold on to that and sort of like the girl in the story, like, um, find our way from that thread back to God, there's no place that we could go where we wouldn't be that where we would be out of reach. You know, that Psalm of where can I go? Where can I flee from your spirit? Um, if I go to the depths, you're there. This is the golden thread of original blessing that no matter where we go, no matter what we do, no matter what choices we make, that thread always leads us back home. Mm-hmm. And that gives us that sense of trust and safety that we really need to be able to flourish in our life with God. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's so good. Again, that I mean that's just super helpful overall and it it helps, you know, helps me personally and reminds me as well too that like um God isn't this you know, being up in the sky somewhere, you know, like out there, but more so God is always present with us always. Right. Um, and so that, that was super helpful. And I don't know, I loved how you brought that, uh, throughout the book. And so I think I have two more questions I want to ask you. Um, and neither one of them are teeny questions. So I apologize. (laughs) Oh, good. No, I like the big questions. That's good. Oh, cool. Yeah. So, one, I mean, and these these two things are, I think, probably the two questions or maybe two objections that listeners um, who maybe aren't quite bought in 
uh, or people maybe that like uh, some of our listeners would want to share this with family members that I think would come up. And the first thing, uh, which I think is a super interesting question, um, is, okay, so if original sin isn't the thing and original blessing is, then what what exactly happened in the Garden of Eden? Um, and I remember the first time I heard someone was, you know, was speaking about this, um, they were talking about how when they talked about the fall to uh, one of their Jewish friends who was a rabbi, they were like, show me in the text where that is. I don't see it. <laughs> and that, so then I was like, wow. So that's just something I've been taught, and then I read into the text. But I'm interested then. What exactly happened in the garden? Yeah. Well, so you can, the great thing about scripture is you can read it a whole lot of ways and still be faithful. Like, you know, there's not just one way of reading it to be faithful. You can read it in a whole lot of ways to be faithful. The irony is I think reading it as a false story is actually not a faithful way of reading (laughs) that story because it's not in there. You know, you're right. The word, the fall isn't in there. Any talk about our human nature being altered in some way isn't in there. The fact that there was no death before, but now there is, is also not in there. Like all these things that we have assumed the story has said, they're not in there. So when we, when we read it, um, I say in the book that I see this as a coming of age story, mm-hmm. that there is a natural, whether we like it or not, the natural way that we live our human lives is that we have a childhood where hopefully in, in ideal circumstances, we feel loved and safe and secure and most of our needs are taken care of. Mm -hmm. And then we hit a time when we have to go out on our own and start making our own decisions. We can't just rely on what our parents have told us to do, or we do the right thing because our parents will tell us that we're grounded. If we don't, you know, Mm -hmm. we have to actually make the, our own choices for our own selves. And usually between those two periods of life, we have an act of rebellion. <laughs> and that act of rebellion is kind of the one way, the first way that we start really testing the love that we feel for our parents, right? I have teenagers. I can tell you that that, that does ring to, true to circumstance, right? Like, yes, but will you love me if I'm like sassy? You know, do you still love me? Will you still give me these cookies for dinner? You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. um, they just want to test like how much does this love really count? Um, and also they're just trying to figure out their relationship in the world. And so Adam and Eve in this moment, I think partly accidentally and partly on purpose stumbled into this act of rebellion where you know, they didn't do the thing that they were supposed to do. I don't think God is that shocked about it. It doesn't look in the text like God didn't maybe see this coming, you know, yeah. like how dumb do you think God is that God was like, what? I put this, <laughs> this tree and I can't believe you ate from it. Like, you know, <laughs> right. I think this was all probably not all that shocking to God. Um, but it's a coming of age story because when they do, God sends them forth from the garden to do the hard work of making these choices, of choosing between good and evil, of learning to discern between good and evil, mm-hmm. and um, doing what I think the point of Scripture is, which is that we are here to grow in wisdom um, in the way that we understand wisdom to be um, coming from the source of God and from the presence of our soul within us. And so... Um, I see that story not as a fall, but as a natural coming of age when, you know, um, rebellion was required or necessary. It's a necessary part. And for me, taking that apple is ingesting the knowledge of good and evil, which happens when you're a teenager. You start Mm -hmm. to realize that the world is actually more complex. You know, you're a high school 
pastor. You can yeah. say, you can debate stuff in a high school youth group that you cannot say in second grade Sunday school. Absolutely. It's not because it's not true when they're in second grade. It's because they're not ready to hear it, you sure. know? Um, but they get to the point in high school where they're actually ready and they, they have the capacity to understand that there's like tough stuff going on in the world and that there's more than two, two questions of what to do, you know, right <laughs> or wrong. And there's this spectrum of stuff and things you can try to choose the right thing and it can go sideways. And like, you know, all these things start to get complicated and teenagers are the, are the age at which we actually understand that that, that that's possible. And so, um, in good teenage fashion, that's what they, they ingested into their, to their awareness, right? If it's a consciousness story, mm-hmm. they, they ingested this, um, this fruit and understood the, the difference between good and evil and all the complexity that comes with that. Yeah. And God sent them forth from the garden then to say, okay, now your job is to do that in the real world. And by the way, it kind of sucks sometimes, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, like I hate to tell you, but this whole life thing that you're going to have to be choosing is actually like work. You know, you don't get to just magically have it like you did in the garden. You have to till the soil. And if you're a woman who's, who's going to bring life from her body, it's going to cost some pain and suffering, you know, like mm-hmm. none of these things are going to come for free. That's not how the world works, but it's worthwhile work. You know, sure. there will be benefit to your, to the fruits of your labor. Yeah. Um, Anyway, I'm kind of rambling, but no, that's so it's so good that it's super it's super helpful. I mean, especially to um, you know, you you mentioned how uh, there's not necessarily one faithful way to interpret scripture, and um, I remember uh, a metaphor I was once um, given was like kind of like viewing scripture as like a diamond with multiple yeah. facets, and so yeah. we can keep turning the diamond and and seeing it in new and unique ways, and it's still the diamond, it's still the thing. Um, but we're seeing it from different perspectives, and that's um, actually I think the Bible wants us to do that. <laughs> yeah, that's the I whole think, reason why it's written so yeah. you know mystically, right? Right, right. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and you know, rabbis sit around and uh, argue about stuff. And there's you know, there's this joke about you know, two rabbis have been uh, you know sitting and and they've been arguing about this one passage in Scripture together. For 40 years, every week, they come together and they argue and argue and argue. And God finally gets fed up with it and says, all right, I'm going to go down there and I'm going to tell them what it actually means. So God goes down and he says, hey, guys, look, this is why I'm here. I'm going to tell you what it means. And they tell him, you know, basically like, hey, man, piss off. <laughs> We're right. going to keep arguing and figure this out. <laughs> right. Yes. But I think that's the point. I think yeah. wrestling yeah. and I think that builds faith, that builds your relationship with God. It's such a beautiful thing. So I really appreciate that. And um, also to the, I mean, the, the coming of age uh, story, especially when I was reading uh, within your book was super helpful. I think the way you talked about it made a lot of sense to me because I first encountered that idea actually um, from Tim Mackey. Uh, who does the Bible Project, if you're familiar with them. Oh, yeah. Um, he talked about that in a podcast, and I, like, couldn't see it. I didn't quite understand what he was getting at. Um, and I think you did a really good job of laying it out in a way that made sense. So that was super helpful. So thank you for that. Um, awesome. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, all the all the the Jewish commentaries on uh, the Garden of Eden, you know, they say lots of different things, but none of them get to the point of original sin. Right, (laughs) (laughs) which is so interesting. That's not even debatable. Like, that's just not a thing that we're talking about here. You know, it's about like 
when it happened. And there's there's debate in the Eastern Orthodox Church about the tree of life. You know, I mean, there's all these super interesting debates and none of them are about original sin, you know. Right. It's so interesting. <laughs> It is so interesting. I'm like, oh, that's definitely not where the action is. For the <laughs> right. It's kind of, it's one of those questions. It's like, uh, I mean, for some people, I, I think of um, like recently, uh, I know N.T. Wright gets, sorry, I keep bringing him up again. He's Ooh, my oh, favorite. Fine. But uh, someone, I was watching a video of him recently and someone asked him uh, like, oh, like, well, something about women in ministry. And he literally rolled his eyes and was like, why are you Americans so obsessed with this question? Like, <laughs> we've been done with it forever. Move on. Yes, right. women should be pastors. Let's move on. And so, like, I think that with some sometimes this question, depending what circles you swim in theologically, it's kind of the same thing, like an eye roll. Like, gosh, guys, come on. I thought we settled this. Let's move on. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah. I do think it's really, it's really difficult. And again, it may, we can always bring it back to original sin. If you think that you've got to figure out how to get it right, because so much is on the line, you know, um, because you have this weird thing in original sin where like nothing is your fault, but everything is your responsibility. Right. You know, there's like such a danger in that. It's like nothing's your fault, but everything's your responsibility. Like you don't, you can't choose differently but you should feel terrible about all of it anyway. Yeah, It's just such a terrible bind to put yourself in. But it does create this sense of legalism because you've just got to figure the system out, you know? Mm-hmm. And so then you're trying to put the system on Scripture, and then you're not reading Scripture with any sense of love or um, openness or willingness because you're just trying to search for, like, quote, the right answer. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, so um, approaching it in a, a rabbinical way or a midrashic way is, is yeah. like the it's the best way to go because it, it allows you to say, depending on who I am today, the spirit might reveal something different to me in this. And there's a limit on what that is. Like, you know, right. we always say Jonah and the whale is not about a robot. You know what right. I mean? It's, it's <laughs> right. like logical limits to what that story actually could be about. But in that, there's still enough room to really get a lot of great spiritual wisdom out of it. And so yeah. it's Absolutely. sad to that we've limited Genesis three, which is like a, super interesting story you know right. and we've limited it to this one like really bad off <laughs> of it so, sure sure yeah. see well i guess the the last thing and i mean i know this is this is the one that everybody i think asks or comes to mind like okay this all sounds great and and dandy but if original blessing is true then why do we need jesus you right know, why why did jesus have to die and that's yeah. a really big question. Yep. <laughs> but I know that people is, are wondering it. That is the number one question that I get um, because we set up our understanding of the cross to be based on the problem of sin. Yep. So um, you kind of have to put yourself in a place where you say, okay, if it wasn't about the problem of sin, what else could it be about, you know? And then you go back to the boxes and you say, oh, well, okay, if we understand, if we rewind all of Western Christian tradition and we go back to that place before the East and the West split, then we're back to the death being the big box. Mm-hmm. So if it's not the problem of sin that God is fixing on the cross, it's the problem of death that God is fixing on the cross. Yeah. And that has a lot more room in it for all of the mystery that is the cross itself, right? Mm-hmm. So. If you understand the cross as a declaration of God's victory over death, then Jesus had to die as a young person in real time and be risen 
as a young person in real time to show us that victory. Like if Jesus had been 89, I guess it would have been cool if he came back to life. <laughs> but like, do you know what I mean? It wouldn't have yeah. the same thing to it. Right. Yeah. So I don't know, maybe in whatever, in in that understanding, God knew that, 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 that this was an important thing to show. Mm-hmm. It's also important that it's not just about death and life in that one literal way. It's also about death and life in the midst of an empire. Like, Absolutely. What do you do when you're a prophet speaking out, out against the Roman Empire? Well, you're going to get killed for that. But also, <laughs> God is going to have the last word. You know, the truth yeah. will out. The truth will out. Absolutely. And so the truth of um, Jesus' message will not be upended by the, the loudness and the violence of the Roman Empire. Yeah. Um, the cross is about solidarity with people who are suffering. You know, I talked about Moltmann, who's my favorite theologian, and the book that that kept me from leaving seminary was The Crucified God. Yeah. Um, where Great you understand, book. oh my gosh, it's one of the best, right? <laughs> um, that he says the cross is not and cannot be loved. But the point of the cross is that when we're in places, when we feel rejected, isolated, betrayed, you know, condemned, that Jesus has joined us in that place, you know, mm-hmm. to the depths of hell, like Jesus descended into hell, right? That is a declaration of God's solidarity and fidelity and faithfulness and love to us, mm-hmm. that God would go anywhere to make sure that there's no place on earth that God hasn't been yeah. and that God's life has been brought and so Jesus came to do all of those things and to teach us what it means to live in wisdom and to choose and discern between the knowledge of good and evil and to see what it looks like when our divinity and our humanity can like be in, in conversation and in unity with one another. Like Jesus embodies all of those things on our behalf. So of course he still had to come and of course yeah. he still had to die. and Of course he still has to be raised. There's just way more room in it when it's not just about your sin. Right. Yeah, it makes it so much bigger, and it makes the gospel bigger, too. It makes God yeah. bigger. It makes Jesus bigger. <laughs> and I think one thing, too, that, that I'm always reminded of, um, and I don't know who I heard you know say at first, what they, but they say, like, before Jesus came to die, he also came to show us how to live. Yes, um, of course. And I think there's so much in that, too. You know, we, yeah. uh, with some of these, like, uh, I think we get, you know, truncated versions of the gospel, which, you know, again, a, a really gross, simplified caricature would be we've done bad things. God was mad about it. Somebody had to pay. Jesus, you know, stepped in and, you know, God killed him instead of us. And now we're good. Um, that leads to like this almost like this escapist kind of theology that what our bodies, this world our relationships with each other, none of this matters. All that matters is that one day we're going to be in some, you know, ethereal place in the sky. Um, right. When I think that misses everything. <laughs> everything. Jesus, literally everything. Like, no, like when Jesus is talking about salvation and eternal life and the kingdom of God, he's talking about something we can inherit and live into right here and right now. And yeah. we're missing so much beauty when we truncate that aspect out and that like, I think that's a huge, huge, huge reason why Jesus came still. Right. Yeah. Um, it's, I mean, again, that's just when those, I remember distinctly when these things started to click and come into place and I started to see this picture, I remember sitting in my bedroom at my parents' house, 
um, it was like my senior year in college and literally weeping like, mm. God, you have to, if this isn't true, then tell me because this is so much more beautiful, so much more bigger than I ever thought it could be. Mm. Um, and I still cry all the time and my students make fun of me for it. I can't control <laughs> it. <laughs> That's amazing. You totally should. They need to see that. Yeah, but it happens. And, um, Actually, we have like a Discord server set up right now for our students during this social isolation, and there have been multiple memes posted there about how Josh cries, and so <laughs> they like awesome. they like to make fun of me for it. But um, but when you see that this really does encapsulate the beauty of the world and like that that in its totality, you know that there yeah. is suffering and that there is pain, and there is evil, but there is goodness, and joy, and love, like, you can't take any of it without the rest of it, like, it's all a package deal, yeah. but there's something so deeply beautiful about having space for all of that, and I think when you see the fullness of the gospel, like, the harmony of all of those things working together, it does bring you to this really tender place, where you just feel, you feel tender about the whole world, you know, yeah. when you realize that it all hinges on connection, like life is nothing but connection. You know, it's our connection to water, the water table and yeah. the trees <laughs> connection to the whatever and the, the ants connection, the bees, like literally all of us are creating this world together that is supposed to be filled with life and that that life can be lived in our personal lives as well. And the way that we treat other people and treat everything around us. I mean, there is something so beautiful to the calling to that life right now. Why would yeah. we, why would we throw that away for something that's supposed to happen in this small truncated way later? It just right. seems, that's why crazy. would we make that? Yeah. Yeah. It's man. It's so crazy. I don't know. It's, I, it's, it, I get sad sometimes too, because I know so many people think that that's what they ought to believe is this truncated version. And I know, you know, pastors who've been to seminary and, and all this kind of stuff, they would say like, oh, you're just painting a caricature or whatever. But this is what congregants think they ought to believe. This yeah. is what my students have told me they think they ought to believe. <laughs> it's right. like, guys, come on. It's so much better, so much more beautiful, uh, so much bigger. Um, and so it's, I don't know, I think and then with all of that, like original blessing just makes sense of all of those things. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's one of those things for me. And I know this, this gets dangerous, um, depending on how you, you know, when you speak this way, but there are certain things, um, the best way I can explain it is like when you experience truth, which again, sounds weird when you experience truth or ultimate reality in these transcendent moments, you just have a way of knowing that something is good and true and beautiful, if that makes sense. Yes. Um, and those are the moments that, that I start crying. Um, and it's not, you know, it's not like a fake, like, let me pull a Joel Osteen on you. It's like, there's something that just happened um, while I'm preaching this message or something like that, that is transcendent, that is beyond myself, that is beyond everybody in this room, but we're also somehow all included in this. That yeah. is just so beautiful. Um, and in those moments, that's, that's like one way, I guess, um, you know, uh, I talk about experiencing God, but original blessing and the ideas, you know, that you put forth in your book all fit that category. Um, well, that's, uh, so, thank you. That's, yeah. that's my, I mean, my whole purpose as a spiritual director is 
to help people heed those moments where they feel that sense of connection to the holy. You know, when you, mm. you know, when you experience it, you know, when you're hiking and you get to the top and you have this moment where you just think, I'm kind of just nothing in this big old world. <laughs> right. But also like, I think I'm like special and unique and important, you know, right. like, and you can't, you, you know, you try to put words to these experiences and you can't, they're just totally beyond verbal comprehension. You know, you can't explain it to someone else, but these moments when you know, you know, in your soul that you are close to what is holy and true, you know, you're close to the fullness of it. Mm-hmm. That's what really transforms us, you know, and that's the stuff I think that leads us home. So like, that's what we have to, to pay attention to and listen to. So, yeah. um, yeah, that's, I think we can't do that if we don't even trust that we can make a, a decision for good. Right. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Like if we think we're inclined to evil continually, how can we trust our souls to us to that place that God will actually, through the spirit, bring this transformation to bear on our lives so that we are touched by what's holy and changed right. by it. You know? Yeah, Absolutely. Man, and I think too, like those transcendent moments or, or whatever you want to call them, uh, those are the kind of things that um, I would have to deny and pretend didn't happen or weren't real if I were to ever say like, okay, Christianity is stupid and I'm going to go be an atheist now, um, which right. I just, I can't, I've, I mean, I've been pushed in that direction before. I've had dark nights of the soul, whatever you want to call it. And those kind of transcendent moments are always what, like, you can't deny that. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, I don't know. It's super helpful. It's, yeah. It's your experience of reality, like capital R reality. Right. You know? Right. You're seeing, there's no mirror. It's like, it's just the real, <laughs> yeah. you know? Um, yeah. You can't deny that stuff. That's the stuff that keeps you Christian. Yeah. You know? Straight up. Yeah. See, awesome. Well, there... I'm trying to think if I if I wanted to throw this jab or not because we had a really that's a, that was a great way to end, but maybe I'll throw it anyway. And I wanted to save it to the end because I just I think it's so ludicrous. But there's there's this understanding in original sin um, that like I just wanted to poke fun at for a second if that's okay, um, sure. just as a way to wrap things up. Even okay. though I think uh, what we just talked about was way better, but um, there's like this understanding in original sin that it's passed on to people through a male's semen is that right and like when i think when people realize that's what original blessing is like when i first saw i was like wait a minute no one actually believes that but also no one tells you that's what it's saying (laughs) so i just wanted to throw that jab really quickly that's crazy (laughs) yeah yeah, that's Tertullian. Yeah. Um, Tertullian said that they were he was trying to figure out like how does sin get transmitted because it's like a virus that gets transmitted from one human to the next and mm-hmm. he said it came through semen. Well, that's just a ridiculous that's ridiculous, right? Yeah. I mean it's okay that Tertullian thought that it was a real long time ago and so I guess we can forgive him for his sure. you know Absolutely. scientific inelegance but it's really uh, not great on us if we still believe that. <laughs> Right. Yeah. I. Yeah. So sorry. Maybe I ha- shouldn't have thrown that out there, but I just thought that was so crazy to me. 
Uh, oh, no, it is. Yeah, that's definitely in the list of like the craziest stuff that I got to research. <laughs> when I was doing this book. I was like, man, some of this stuff is just straight up bonkers, you right, know? Right. Wait a minute. Let's be rational people and think about this for a second. Yeah, this is just not hard to switch from. Like right. no one is mad to get rid of that idea. It's a ridiculous idea. <laughs> yeah, straight up, straight up. And and again, too, it's just, I don't know, Every everything about original blessing just rings true. Um for what it's worth, which I know can be dangerous to, to phrase things that way, but um, that's my reality, and so I'll stick with it. <laughs> I think that's the only way we actually know, and I do think that that comes from God. So Straight up. Yeah, yeah. straight up. And so thank you so much uh, for your work that you put into this book. Thank you for the work that you do as a, a spiritual director and um, all that kind of stuff. Thank you for, for joining uh, me today and, and spending in hour and a half with some person you've never heard of before <laughs> i appreciate that was great. it great thanks for the good conversation yeah thank you so much and i guess real quick to aside so i know people can find um your work on amazon and so i'll be sure to link uh your book in the show notes uh but where else can people go to to find you so um i do have a blog danielshroyer.com i don't um update it quite as regularly anymore but there's stuff on there for you okay. if there's tons of stuff about moltmon if you're a moltmon person i did moltmon mondays every day for years um nice. talking about a, a passage <laughs> from different books of his and so a lot of times seminary students tend to find their way to my site and they are reading stuff um, but yeah, and then I'm on Twitter at DG Schroyer and I'm on Facebook, although not quite as regularly either, but yes, Sweet. I would love to connect. Yeah, this, this has been awesome, Danielle. Thank you so much. And, uh, maybe we can do it again sometime. Awesome. Sweet. Awesome. Well, yeah. Thank you. And, uh, as you guys know, we always have to, to end the show a specific way because it's the way that obviously God wants it ended. And that's by me saying, go caps. <laughs> <laughs> And for Danielle, go Red Wings. Right. <laughs>